Gemara Shabbos quotes the famous Bryce and Mike Hanukkah. According to Rashi, the question should be translated as what miracle is commemorated in the Yom Tov of Hanukkah? The Tanur Abonon, the Chotev, the Kislev, and the 25th of the Kislev, Yom Eid of Hanukkah, Tmanya Inan. The eight days of Hanukkah commence, the long whisper at the home, one does not eulogize during the course of these eight days. And then there's a question how the text should read, with the Lord of Hisanas Bahom, one should not fast. Shekshanifnasu Yavonim Lahechol, one of the Greeks, one of the Syrian Greeks, entered the Hechol, Timaukol Hashmanim, they defiled all the oils, Shabbat in the Hechol. Ukshegavim Malchus Ves Hashmanoi, when ultimately the Hashmanoi prevailed, the Nitzkum, and vanquished them, Botku Vilomatsu, they searched, Elapat Echad Shoshemet. They only found one container, one flask of oil, which had the seal of the coin Godel, clearly indicating that it hadn't even been touched. But it only contained a sufficient quantity of oil for one day. A miracle happened. And they were able to, using this small quantity of oil, like for eight days. The Shana Acheres, Subsequently, in future years, Chazal of that generation established the Yom Tov of Hanukkah for eight days. What I'd like to explore together this evening briefly, what's the significance of the Nes Hashem, the miracle of the oil? Specifically, why does the Brisa emphasize the Nes Hashemen and not even highlight the miracle of the military conquest? That's just mentioned uh, parenthetically as historical background to the Nes Hashemen. But uh, the, what, what's featured in the, in the marquee is the story of the Nes Hashemen. It's not the story of the... Uh, of the Muhammad, not the story of the battle, but it's rather the story of the the miracle with the oil in Alanisan in Shmanesre. It's on the contrary. We focus exclusively on the Muhammad and don't mention the Nes Hashem. So why is it that the Brice here does not do so? Moreover, even leaving aside the omission of of the Nesha Muhammad, the Bryce is puzzling because seemingly the miracle of the oil in the Besan Mikdash, by the standards of the Besan Mikdash, wasn't too exceptional. Wasn't too exceptional. Whether we look at the Mishnah in about the uh, ten miracles which were commonplace in the Besan Mikdash, how the rain was never able to extinguish the, the fire on the Mizbeach, or the other miracles listed, or whether it's the Gemara Numa, which tells us about uh, the miracles associated, associated with the Nehemiah Rodri, that one candle of the seven lights in the menorah in the base of Mikdash always burnt for 24 hours, even though it was only given a sufficient quantity for the night. So this the miracle of the Nesha Shemin, again, you know, it's a pretty good trick from, from, you know, by our standards, but by the standards of the Beis HaMikdash, it wasn't really that exceptional. So why is it 
that it's this miracle which shapes and molds the Yom Tov of Hanukkah, the primary mitzvah, of course, the Havlokas near Hanukkah, the duration of the Yom Tov, eight days, everything takes its cue from the Neis Hashem, and yet, by the standards of the Beis HaMikdash, the Neis Hashem really wasn't all that exceptional. So when one thinks about it a little bit, a very interesting and suggested symmetry appears. And that is, in our Nisan, we say, Masatu Giborim Biyad Chaloshim, and then, Rabim Biyad Ma'atim, Tzmeim Biyad Tahor, and then we continue, Rishon Biyad Tzadikim, Zaydim Biyad Oskei Sarasafa. So we describe the, the battle waged by the Chashmonoyim, and the miracles involved as Rabim Biyad Ma'atim, right, the many were given into the hands of the few, and and the, the impure into the hands of the pure. So the symmetry here is again very suggestive and very telling that in the milk there's a symmetry between the miracle on the battlefield and the miracle with the shaman. In each case it was ma'at, a small quantity, which was able to prevail against all odds simply due to the fact that it was tahor, because its purity was uncompromised. What that suggests, and I believe that someone once told me after after presentation of this idea on a different occasion, that I think the Maharal talks about it as well, is that the nace of the menorah, the Beis HaMikdash, was not an independent nace occasioned by the need for such a nace to fulfill the mitzvah of Havlokas HaNevus. On the contrary, the Bach raises a very important question. The Bach says that the Havlokha is, after all, that Tumor is either Duchuya or Hutra B'Tzibor. Meaning that if you have a korban which is supposed to be offered on behalf of the community as a whole, not a private korban, not a korban yachid, but rather a korban tzibor, so even if all the Kohanim are Tmei Mace, have all uh, incurred Tumor because of coming in contact with a dead body, so Achol Pichain, the Korban is to be offered on schedule. Whether that's Duchuya or Hutra, exactly what the nature of this override is, is a dispute. But everyone agrees that the Korban is to be offered. The Taurus Kohanim says in Pasha Samur that the same din applies to Locus Neros. So the truth is, this is the question raised by the Bach, that there wasn't even any halachic need, seemingly, for the miracle of the shaman, that they could have all the other Tiru called Hashman, and so what? So all the shamanim, all the oils had been defiled, so what? Nevertheless, they could have, even though there was Tumas Mace involved here, they could have used this to fulfill the mitzvah anyway. That's <laughs> the kasha which the, the Bach raises. And the Chacham Tzvi, the Bach gives a complicated answer, which the Chacham Tzvi and others don't, uh, don't agree with, they don't endorse. And the Chacham Tzvi says the truth is there was no halachic need for the miracle. As far as the mitzvah of Hadlokas Neiros in the Mikdash, so there was no need for the miracle. And they could have lit and fulfilled the mitzvah even with those shmanim, even with those oils which had been defiled by the Syrian Greeks. So that, what then was the need for the miracle? So again, it's the symmetry that the Nes Hashemin was intended to illuminate 
the nice nistar, the hidden miracle on the battlefield. That's what the the thrust or the purpose of the miracle was, and it's for that reason that it's so significant. Again, had it simply been a way of fulfilling the mitzvah of Hadlokas Neros, number one, it was unnecessary. Number two, it wasn't all that exceptional by the standards of the Vesan Hikdash, where the miracles were commonplace. But it's rather that symmetry. If anyone had failed to decipher the true meaning of what had occurred on the battlefield, had anyone failed to understand the miraculous nature of Rabbin Biyad Ma'atim, Tzmei Biyat Ha'orim, so HaKadosh Baruch Hu orchestrated that there would be a nice nigla, that there would be an open revealed miracle which would clearly interpret what had happened previously on the battlefield. So the lesson then, the first lesson of the nice Haneros in the Beis HaMikdash is that Ma'atim Tahorim can prevail, but provided that that Ma'at and those Tahorim are energized by Mesiris Nafesh. Now Mesiris Nafesh takes upon itself, it has different forms in different eras. There's no one standard form in which Mesiris Nefesh is manifest, and even within one historical era, Mesiris Nefesh will be manifest in different forms. Today, obviously, Achenu, Bnei Yisrael, and Eretz Yisrael demonstrate a literal form of Mesiris Nefesh in protecting Eretz Yisrael. But there's another type of Mesiris Nefesh and that too was very prominently featured in the nace of Hanukkah. Let's review a little bit of the history of the clash between Greek culture and Lahabdil Tov. Within Greek culture, there are two seemingly antithetical strands. On the one hand, Greek culture was marked by its pursuit of pleasure. Not only the word, but also the concept of hedonism comes from ancient Greece. It's not only a Greek word, but it's also a Greek concept. On the other hand, we also correctly associate with ancient Greece rationalism. Ancient Greece is the cradle of Western culture, is the cradle of Western rationalism. So how did those two how were they combined within one culture? They seem to be antithetical. On the one hand, pursuit of pleasure. On the other hand, rationalism. But in fact, there's no intellectual schizophrenia here. But there was a common denominator to the hedonistic side of Greek culture and to its rational side. And that is that Greek culture was anthropocentric, i.e. it was centered around man. The Ramban, in a very stunning and, and stinging characterization in Pasha's Aphemos, in context of uh, talking about the Salah Zazel, so at the end of his comment there, the Ramban says that he doesn't want to have to begin refuting the views of Aristotle and his disciples. He says, "Ha'inu tzrichim lachsom pi ha'mischach mim b'teva ha'nimshochim achrei ha'yivani." 
He says, if I would elaborate more, I would have to begin to literally stifle those who think that they're wise, who are drawn after the who are drawn after the Greek, i.e., Aristotle. And now here comes the Ramban's characterization of Aristotle and by extrapolation of Greek rationalism, he denied anything which wasn't either tangible or perceptible to him. But he gives Daito Lakshov and he arrogantly, presumptuously thought he and his wicked disciples that what he couldn't intellectually grasp couldn't be true. There couldn't be any truth beyond his understanding. That his understanding was the measure of everything. That's the Ramban's characterization of Aristotle and, again, clearly by extension, of Greek philosophy. And it's exactly that bent of Greek rationalism, the fact that it was centered around man, that it was anthropocentric, which was the common denominator that it shared with the Greek hedonism. It was the same thing. It was focused on man. It was focused man, man's tibus, man's... Uh, Yetzirahs were at the center of the universe, and for that matter, man's mind was at the center of the universe, and anything which man could not grasp, so couldn't be true, and man was the measure of everything. And again, that, this strange coupling, what seems to us superficially to be a coupling of opposites, is something which you find again in history, again most uh, notably at the period of the Renaissance, again, you have that the convergence, on the one hand, there's a flowering of uh, intellectual activity, and yet it's very, very pleasure-oriented. Again, the common denominator is this anthropocentrism. The Amnesia points out, again, just calling attention to words which we say in Alanisim, that the thrust of the Greek attack against Torah was right? to force the, the Jewish people to abandon not Torah, not the Mishpatim, not the rational side of Torah, the Avdeneza says, but rather And again, because that, that's what Greek culture represented. Greek culture represented if there's anything which we can't grasp, if there's anything which we can't intellectually assimilate, so then it can't be true. It's wrong. It shouldn't be binding on us. There can't be any morality which is higher than human understanding. And that was the thrust of the, again, of the intellectual, of the cultural clash between Greek culture and Lahavdil. Torah was So what the Hashemunan displayed was not only heroism on the battlefield, it was not only the heroism, again, which we see in Achenu B'nai Yisrael and Eretz Yisrael today, as we talk, <coughs> but also an intellectual Mesiris Nefesh. And, and Mesiris Nefesh, that a person strives to understand as much as possibly can be understood within Torah, and then a willingness 
to submissively bow one's head and say, and what we don't understand, so we accept the Ritzon Hashem, even though we can't understand it. We don't accept that, again, we don't have that attitude of that what we can't attain, that what we can't grasp, this Svarasenu, with our logic, with our understanding, can't be MS. The Ratzapan Lagmacha used to discuss from time to time the need that we have as Mahazah in our generation for intellectual mysterious Nefesh. For simply with devotion, unquestioning, without questioning, accepting the Son Hashem <coughs> even when it defies our understanding. In fact, he used to tell a story which I think the typescripts of this drasha that circulate, the story has become famous about a case which he actually had, Allah about an assimilated young Jewish man who had a Gentile girlfriend. The boy's family <coughs> insisted that she be converted. They weren't religious, but they didn't want their son. They didn't want, well, the, the father we'll see in a minute was not alive, they didn't want the, the son intermarried. So the woman was very sincere, and she said, if I'm going to convert, so it has to be something authentic. It can't just be a charade, it has to be authentic. So she went, and she studied about Yadus, and she became a Giyos Tzedek, and she influenced him that he should be Chazer Vitshuva. After this long, arduous, sincere process, so then they were ready to get married. So the, uh, the boy's father was not alive, so he was told that there's a custom, which some people have, that if one of the parents is not alive, you go out to the cemetery, and as it were, whatever the custom means, you invite the deceased parent to come to the wedding. So he goes to the, to the cemetery, and uh, he sees, uh, right away, with, with great ease, he finds, uh, he finds the grave, and he sees this strange inscription on the top of the uh, matzeh, on the top of the tombstone. He sees a picture like this, on top of the tombstone. doesn't know, it's a strange-looking uh, inscription. But anyway, so he invites to the, to the wedding, and then he goes and he mentions to someone, you know, I went to the, I went to the cemetery, and I saw this really strange inscription. I wonder what that's all about. So they told him that it's customary to put that inscription on the tombstone of the Kohen. Okay, so again, he doesn't think twice. And then someone tells him, and you know, the Kohen can't marry a Giyos. So they came to the Rav to ask, what do we do? Is there any hat? So the Rav described, very movingly, how obviously he had, uh, again, after everything was corroborated, <coughs> that, these in fa- that, that these were the facts, that the young man, the Valchuva, was a Kohen, and that the Giyomis Tzedek, who had influenced him to Rechoza Vichuva, therefore they could not get married. So he told them. He told them, I'm sorry, there is no Hatzit. There is no Hatzit. And he described how they didn't press him, how there was no but, what if, they said, we accept it, and they left. And, and they went their separate ways. The Rav said, that's an example of intellectual mysterious nafesh. 
That's the mysterious nefesh which the Hashmonaim displayed against the Greek onslaught of Lahavira Mechukevitzonecha, and it's the mysterious nefesh that we have to aspire to. Much of the internal religious problems that we have within our own circles of orthodoxy can be traced back to two factors. Number one, that what can be understood we don't sufficiently understand. And number two, what perhaps can't be understood, either because intrinsically it can't be understood or because of our cultural biases, which we have uh, by osmosis assimilated, makes it impossible for us to understand. So we don't have that willingness, that intellectual mysterious nefesh, to act as this young couple did when they came to the Rav and were told that there is no heter for them. So that's clearly one dimension of the Neis HaShemen that is illuminated the Neis HaMelchama, thereby teaching the lesson of Rabin Biyad Ma'atim, Tzmeim Biyad Tahorim, provided that Tahorim, the Ma'atim, are energized by Mesiris Nefesh. Let's just take a few more moments to explore a second dimension of the Neis HaShemen. And again, to do this, we have to, again, delve a little bit into another one of the areas of conflict in the cultural war between Greek ideals, Hellenic culture, and Mahabdil, Ben Hatomi, Ben and between Torah. Greek culture was very physical, very, very physically oriented. It celebrated the human body, the art of human sculpture flourished in ancient Greece. Physical prowess and athleticism were practically, maybe even the word practically can be dropped, was semi-deified. The Olympics in ancient Greece wasn't merely a sporting event, wasn't merely a way of getting your picture on the Wheaties box and making a lot of money with your pictures on the Wheaties box, but it was a religious event. It was a religious event, physical activity. Races was a religious event in ancient Greece. Ancient Greece celebrated to the point of, again, virtual deification, the human body. Now obviously Yahadus rejects such coarse and crude materialism, and yet Yahadus only does not go to the extreme of negating the physical, doesn't see the physical as evil. There is a very beautiful medrash in Bresh's Rabbah, first uh, shown to me by my father, Zafon Levotha. The medrash says here, Kaviyochol, after Sheshes, you made Bresh's, Kaviyochol HaKadosh Baruch Hu Mizgo'eva As it were, HaKadosh Baruch Hu takes pride in what he created, in the physical world that he created. The Omer, he says, Look at this creation, which is my handiwork. Look at this form, which I molded. who praises creation. So who can then can speak pejoratively 
about about Hakadosh Baruch Hu's creation. Well, on Mikalson, Hakadosh Baruch Hu loved the physical world that he created. Who mean no same Bohem Dolphi? So who can disparage the creation? But they are a source of pride, they are praiseworthy. Similarly, the Rav, he wrote about this among other places in, in his essay, Vikashta Bisham, underscores the fact that Kiyama Mitzvah, just living a complete Torah life, requires physical involvement. If anything, the Torah, rather than minimizing physical involvement, that the Torah demands physical involvement, whether it's in the form of mitzvahs elna, whether it's in the form of different mitzvahs achila, but the Torah, again, far from encouraging any kind of uh, ascetic regimen, it actually requires involvement in the physical world. Yadros teaches that physicality, disciplined and refined, not only can, but should be employed in our Avodah Hashem. In other words, I think the phrase which we can use to encapsulate it, and then I'll, I'll, I'll explain it, is that Yahadus teaches, and again, obviously this stands in stark contrast to the deification of the physical and the material of Greek culture, Yahadus teaches the eternity of temporality. What does that phrase mean? that if the physical and finite are channeled towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu, even an act as eating can also serve as a bridge to eternity. Now when you think about it, so what was the Nes Hashem? What was the Nes Hashem? Nes Hashem was a small quantity, something physical, right? And what did the, what did, and the Shaman just kept on burning and burning and burning, right? just kept on going, couldn't be extinguished. Small, small, physical quantity. So what did that represent? That too was intended to highlight a dimension of the miracle of Hanukkah. Again, what had the clash been? The clash had been between the celebration of the physical as an end into it, unto itself, which is what Greek culture preached, versus not the negation of physical, that's not what Yahadus <coughs> teaches, but rather Yahadus says that the physical has to be used, again, has to be channeled, has to be refined, has to be disciplined, but with all that, it's then used and integrated into one's Avodah Hashem. What's temporal, what's physical, what, what's, what's here today, gone tomorrow, it's only temporal, but according to Yahadus, again, if that's integrated into one's Avodah Hashem, that too can be a bridge to eternity. That's what the Nes Hashem represented. This little bit of oil, so it should have only lasted an hour, a few hours. The same thing, a physical act, which we do in Olam Hazer, shouldn't reverberate. It shouldn't reverberate. Either reject it, was celebrated as an end unto itself, as the Greeks did. And Yahweh just says, no, the physical, again, can also reverberate spiritually if only a person channels that towards HaKadosh Baruch Hu. If a person <coughs> integrates that into his Avodah Hashem, so then the physical 
the temporal is also a bridge to eternity. And that's what the nice Hashem then represented. In fact, this is the, the teaching which the Rambam quotes the Apostle in Tanakh, a mission in Kekeobos, of Bechot Rachacha Do'ehu and Bechot Masachi Yil Hashem Shemayim in the Perigimu Tochaz Deyos, how a person is supposed to contextually through the motivation that he brings to all of his endeavors, to all of his actions, when a person goes to the office, when a person uh, exercises to stay uh, fit, when a person eats and drinks, engages in physical activity, the Raman says all of this is supposed to be elevated to a level of Avodah Hashem by attaching the correct goals and intentions to these, again, physical, seemingly only physical, only mundane activities, and that, again, was part of the clash between Greek culture and Lahavdil and Torah. Too often, not only do we sort of lulled into a type of spiritual sleep, not only don't we take the time to reflect upon all our mundane activities and commitments and try to infuse them with this notion of too often we get up in the morning, we go to work just out of routine, without stopping to think, without trying to create this broader context for what we do. And not only that, not only do we too often not take advantage of the opportunity of building a bridge from temporality, from physicality, to spirituality, to eternity, but too often, we tend to do the exact opposite. Too often, we tend to temporalize the eternal. Not only do we not elevate our actions, our going to work, our eating, our drinking, our keeping fit, not only don't we infuse that with the Kavon L'Shem Shemayim, but too often we bring our Kavon L'Shem Shemayim into the Shul, into the base Medrash, whether it's show politics, whether it's talking in show, whatever form it takes. So that's the antithesis of what the Ne'er Hanukkah represents. The Ne'er Hanukkah represents, on the contrary, infusing spirituality into the physical, into the material, using that as a bridge to eternity, and not Rahman Latlan, that we should do the exact opposite of temporalizing, of lowering Again, Torah, Tefillah, Yahadus, by bringing to beer our own agendas, our own biases, that's the exact opposite of what the Yom Tov of Hanukkah represents. There's a minig that during the time that the Hanukkah left their learning, to spend at least some of the time to look at the nearest Hanukkah. To look at the nearest Hanukkah. No, it's not uh, mandatory in terms of the Torah and Mitzvah of Nehachanika, but there's a minute, a minute. 
even the Bible used to interrupt his learning to go in and uh, spend some time looking at the Neos Hanukkah. So what exactly is a, is a person supposed to see when he sees the Neos Hanukkah burning? What is he supposed to be thinking about? So a person is supposed to be thinking about Rabin Biyad Mahatim, Tzmein Biyad Tachodim, about the power, the potency of a little bit of purity energized by Mesiris Nefesh, and a person is supposed to see how a little bit, even of our physical, finite involvements, going to work. A person goes to work to be because I put who says that we should exert ourselves to make a living, to make a Kiddush Hashem in, in the world. So these physical, finite, this little Pach Shemen, it burns and burns and burns and doesn't stop to burn. It continues to reverberate. And all that is contained in the flame of the Nehus Hanukkah.